The following is part three of three for our New Believers class taught by Pastor Brad Beers in January of 2024. We encourage you to listen to parts one and two before listening to this class. If you have any questions about the material, please feel free to email Pastor Brad at bbeers at sbctrucky.com. Let's dive into part three. So we're going to talk about uh, what will happen to you or the, the, the main thing, if you wanted to put a Christian ease type word on it, which is just like words that we have a tendency to throw around at church, but don't always define is we're going to talk about what the process of discipleship looks like. Um, so uh, there's no blanks in this first paragraph, but this should try to cover what we've covered the last two weeks and then work our way into this point here. So as we learned from the previous week, or probably weeks, our Christian life will forever be a walk in the grace of God. He saved us with his grace and continues to save us by his grace. We also said that our growth in Christ is a partnership process in which we were called to take steps to pursue Christ. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the process of learning to grow, this growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, the process is called discipleship. So what these blanks are and what we're going to talk about for the rest of the time, we'll be looking at um, a deeper look at discipleship. So point one here, the starting point is simple, but it is crucial. Jesus wants you to follow him. He wants you to follow him. So Jesus uh, commonly was referred to as a rabbi. And one of the things that rabbis would say to people that were listening to them is follow me. And follow me meant literally follow me if they actually could. And sometimes what we saw in the disciples, if you read the gospels, is that they left behind their life and would physically follow Jesus around. But it also meant learn from me, do the things that I do, say the things that I say, be like me. And so that's what this next blank is indicating here. Another way of saying this is that Jesus wants you to take on his, my, my sheet looks a little different here. I'm sorry. Another way of saying this, Jesus wants you to take on his character qualities, his character qualities and follow his directions for you. So take on his character qualities and follow his directions for you. So following Jesus, obviously, because Jesus is no longer physically present here on earth, we don't have the option of physically following Jesus around. But Jesus still wants us to follow him in the same way that followers always have. Here's three passages, um, two of which are from the same chapter. So the first one, Matthew 28, 20, that we're not going to look at, but that Jesus tells his first followers to make new followers as you're going, go into all the world and teach them to observe his commandments. Teach them to observe everything that I have taught you is how Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. So the responsibility of the first followers of Jesus, they were being told, hey, go out into all the world and teach them how to follow what it is that I've just been teaching you to do for the last three years. Pretty simple concept. The thing is, is that sometimes we have a tendency to neglect it. So that's why I'm saying that though the starting point is simple, it's crucial that 
Jesus wants his followers to observe what it is that he taught, and he wants us to teach other people to do the same. If we, uh, we will look at Luke 6 here because the next two points both come out of Luke chapter 6. Let me read uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 48. Luke 6, 46 through 48 says this. This is Jesus talking. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when the flood rose and the torrent burst against the house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard but does not act accordingly is the New American Standard Version or does not actually follow my words or put them into practice is like a man who built a house upon the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. So the first blank here from Luke 646, Jesus isn't your Lord and Lord is another kind of Christianese term that I want to quickly define, but basically your king, the person in charge of your life, somebody that you're willing to submit your will to, according to Jesus' own words in verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So Jesus isn't your Lord until you are willing to do what he says. It's just really that simple. Until we're willing to actually do what he says, Jesus isn't really that in charge of our life. And in all honesty, if we look at that, that basically becomes kind of the determining factor between people who give Christianity a good name and people who give Christianity a bad name, right? We've all met people that self-identify as Christians, but they don't actually live out Jesus' words, and they end up giving Christianity a pretty bad name. But on the flip side, people that do take Jesus' words seriously and use the power of the Holy Spirit, like we talked about last week, to live out Jesus' words, it ends up making a really positive change within the world. And so verses uh, 47 through 48 of Luke 6 says, acting on Jesus' words becomes a foundation for our lives. Jesus uses the example of um, two foundations. If you hear my words and you actually put them into practice, it's like somebody that has a good foundation for their house. That basically... If you want to deal with, in the example that Jesus gives you in 48 and 49, if you want to be able to deal with the storms of life, your life needs to be built on a foundation that's unshakable, that can actually handle the storms of life. If you want your life to collapse, build it on anything else, like building it on sand. So acting on Jesus' words becomes the foundation of our lives, not just knowledge about Jesus, but actually putting into practice what it is that he told us to do. So this last line here, this point one then, so we must first decide, we have to make a decision to follow Jesus and live out his words. It's a very simple concept, but it's a crucial concept that I think a lot of the times people have a tendency to either forget or maybe nobody tells them right out, out the gate that Jesus actually isn't just interested in saving you from your sins. He's actually giving you something upon which we can build our lives and do put his words into practice, living them out. And that actually allows us to face the storms of life significantly more powerfully. So point two then, um, 
and this is a little bit of a repeat from last week, but I think it bears repeating. Once we understand that we must first decide to follow Jesus and live out his words, point two, we have to realize this is going to be a process that does not happen quickly, but Jesus instructs us to ask him for help in doing it. Matthew 7, 7 through 11, um, Jesus says, uh, just ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. So ask and God will give. Within the understanding uh, that Jesus does want us to follow his words, but he understands that that's something that in and of ourselves, we're going to have a hard time doing. We, we will need his help to do it. And he encourages us to ask for his help. He doesn't, that's the beautiful part about it. If we accept his sacrifice for our death, I'm sorry, if we, if we accept his sacrifice for our sins, then we don't have to worry about living them out perfectly. That's already taken care of. But he still wants us to actually live out his words, put his words into practice, and he's going to help us in the process if we'll ask him. Greg, would that, excuse me, would that sort of uh, relate to prayer? Asking absolutely. Prayer. Yeah, absolutely. I think so much of prayer, and we're going to talk a little bit about prayer um, at the end of today, but so much of prayer is our interaction with God. And a lot of the times, the things that we ask especially as we grow in Christ, start to move away from trying to get God to fix our problems and more towards God living his life through us. And so that accepting what he has guided us for. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't happen quickly, but Jesus instructs us to ask for his help. And he promises us, according to Matthew 7, 7 through 11, that he's actually going to give it to us. Point three. Can I ask a question about that? Yes. I've heard that verse misused, like, my entire life. Which like, one? Like, asking and God will give to you. Mm -hmm. It's like, God isn't necessarily going to give you all the desires of your heart because our desires are not necessarily good. So it kind of, I guess what I'm asking is what kind of things can you actually ask and expect to receive? Sure. Is that a fair question? It is a, it's a totally fair question because that's not the only place in the Bible where we, we run across verses that seem to imply that anything that we ask, God will give us. Right. But obviously, if you test that theory out, like on the surface, yeah. um, generally, you know, I haven't asked him for millions of dollars multiple times in my life, but I have asked <laughs> him before because you never really know, right? And I wanted to test it out. And that doesn't always result that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like I want to give a really big answer to that one because I personally have been really working through that concept. Let me, but let me give like a real brief answer and then maybe afterwards we can go back and talk more about it if you'd like. But generally, what God wants to give us is that which is good for us, right? And so the majority of the context in which each time we bump across a verse saying, just ask for whatever you wish, it's normally within a context that seems to indicate that God wants us to, wants to turn us into the type of person that is more likely to ask for things that he would want to give us anyway. And so some people even make the argument so far, which I think is a little too far, mm -hmm. that um, what he's really saying is become the type of person who only asks for God's will to be done. I think that's a little bit too far because I think that it's yeah. 
he still actually does want us to make requests to him. There's multiple verses in the Old and New Testament that indicate that that's the case. But generally speaking, almost similar to that Psalm verse that's really popular, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That generally as he turns us into the type of person that is legitimately delighted to be in this interactive life with God, our requests naturally start reflecting his will anyway. So um, that's what I'm going to give by way of introduction to that. Uh, and then if we want to have a longer conversation about that, I'd love to do that at the end, just so we can make sure we get through this yeah. in a reasonable amount of time. Okay. Um, so then point three. So though Jesus intends for us to follow his commands, he does not design the process. And this is an important thing, especially if you are a doer like I am. He does not design the process to be a grind toward holiness. He does want holiness for us. And we've talked about that in the power of the spirit. But instead, he, he wants to turn us into the kind of people who naturally live out his life. If we look at these three passages, uh, there are certainly more in the New Testament that would indicate that this is the case. But Jesus is not trying, uh, trying to get us just to be the people that do the right actions. He's taking us on a journey of becoming the type of person that naturally lives out the life of Christ. If we look at these three passages, for instance, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, Jesus wants to give us rest there are two blanks here, wants to give us rest through his easy yoke. Maybe you've heard this verse before. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Some people will even so far like not understand this passage and be like, Jesus, it's so hard to obey you all the time. How could you call this an easy yoke? But the reality is the yoke that Jesus wants to place upon us, and this is another fun, you know, fun little insight, but the yoke, I remember I mentioned that Jesus was commonly seen as a rabbi. The yoke of a rabbi was a term that was used during that day of here's how to follow the law, essentially. A rabbi's yoke was the instructions of how to follow the law. And so when Jesus says, come to me if you're exhausted, because my yoke is easy, Jesus is actually saying the intention is not to put the burden of the Old Testament law on you because I've already taken care of that. Instead, come and follow after me. My sacrifice will be enough to forgive all of your failures, to cleanse you from unrighteousness. And instead, I will guide you in the process of fulfilling the law. I did not come to, Jesus says in Matthew chapter Five. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I have come to show you how to live out the law. And his yoke is easy. So that's what those two blanks are. Jesus wants us. Uh, Jesus. Let me. I lost my place here. I'm sorry. I should have made these two look more similar to one another. There it is. Jesus wants to give us rest through his easy yoke. Um, another interesting point. Um, if you look at Galatians 5, 22 and 23, you might be somewhat familiar with this, the passage of the fruit of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. The fruit of the Spirit is the result of the Spirit's work. And it is the result of the Spirit's work that gives us 
the beauty of the, the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe you're familiar with it, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such a thing, there is no law. Here's the interesting part, at least for me personally. No one ever really told me to not understand this verse this way. And so for many, many years, what I thought this verse was telling me was that I should try really hard to be loving, to be joyful, to be peaceful, peace-filled, to be patient, to be kind, to be good, to be gentle, to be self-controlled. I thought that that's what it was that that verse was saying. That's not what that verse was saying. Instead, that is the result of the Spirit's work in our life. We know that the Spirit is at work in our life because it results in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. So much so that if we realize, if we start to look at our lives and don't see these characteristics increasing, we have to ask ourselves, are we really laying ourselves regularly down before the Spirit to allow the Spirit to work in our lives? So it's more like a, like a test to see where you're at. That's absolutely a good way to say it. It is more a test to see where you're at. Another way that Jesus talked about that in um, Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mountain, uh, Jesus says that you will know a tree by its fruits, right? That's, that's where the idea of fruit shows up again in Jesus' teaching. You're going to know what kind of tree it is by what type of fruit it produces. And the direct context of that passage was Jesus warning his followers against false teachers. Hey, if you want to know who the real teachers are, look at their life. Look at their character qualities. Look at the look at how their families really are. Look at how they treat people. Not just, you know, you know what type of teacher they are when you will see the fruit of their life. And we know that the spirit is at work in us if we start to see increasing within us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. doesn't mean that we're perfect at it, but the beauty is that we're not grinding toward holiness. We're allowing the Spirit to bring these things about us as we submit ourselves. So the fruit of the Spirit's work is beautiful character. Okay? And then John 15, maybe you're familiar with this passage, that Jesus is teaching in John 15, verses 4 through 8, to live. He uses the word abide. You could also translate that word as remain or stay put or keep here. Live, live your life in Jesus and fruit will come. That's what we see in John 15. If we live our life in Jesus, fruit will come. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. The one who remains in me will bear much fruit. And again, that's not another passage saying, hey, you better get to the job of fruit bearing. The direction of the passage is not, hey, make sure you bear really good fruit. The direction of the passage is, hey, stay connected to me. Come after me. And as a result of that, I, through the power of the Spirit, like we talked last week, will start bearing my fruit through you. So yes, to reiterate point three, Jesus intends for us to follow his commands, but he did not design the process to be a grind toward holiness. He wants to turn us into the kind of people who naturally live out this life. So what I really needed when I was at the beginning of my journey was not somebody telling me, hey, grit through and try to make the fruit of the Spirit be the way that you act. 
or grit through it and make sure that you do everything that Jesus commanded. Instead, what I needed was somebody to instruct me, what's it look like for me to abide or live or remain in Christ? And so that's what the next section is going to be. How is it that we abide in Christ? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you five categories. This is the bulk of the rest of our time together. I'm going to give you five categories of tools that Jesus gave us to be able to live in him, to remain in him, to abide in him, okay? So here's my paragraph that I basically just stated, but we can read it together. God gave us a variety of tools to use in our effort to seek Christ and abide in him. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, seek after Christ, follow Christ. But sometimes we don't necessarily define what that means. I wanted to give you five categories of things that that actually are the tools available to you in your pursuit of Christ, okay? So, first one is not meant to be done over and over, but it is an important tool. He gave us baptism, baptism. Here's a little paragraph description of baptism. Baptism is the way we declare to other Christians that we identify with Christ, Baptism symbolizes that our old self, our old way, is dead, and our new life in Christ has begun. So it tells others that you are a Christian, and it invites those Christians to support you. When you get baptized, it shouldn't be a private affair. It shouldn't be something that you just do with no one else watching. The exact opposite is true. Baptism is something that we do in front of the rest of the church. And what we see... Um, in these two passages, Matthew 28 and Romans 6, is that baptism is an important part of, our, of the start of our journey. Matthew 28, 19. We've already talked about Jesus talking about this when he was telling his followers right before he left, go out into all the world and teach them to obey my commandments. The other commandment he gave was to tell his followers to baptize the new disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's why when we actually do the symbol of baptism, we will often say those words. That's what our church does in response to that. And there are, you should know, within Christianity, there are uh, differences of opinion of what the symbol of baptism should look like. Like some people will sprinkle water. Some people will pour water. Some people will completely submerge your body into water and then bring you out. Our church chooses the third option primarily because of this Romans 6 passage. Romans 6 verses 1 through 7 shows us that baptism is a symbol of our death and resurrection with Jesus. So we use the surface of the water to symbolize the ground, essentially. That we are dying, going beneath the ground, and that our old self remains there dead underneath the ground, and what is raised is the new man in Christ, the new person in Christ. So baptism is a symbol of our death and resurrection with Jesus. Now, like I said, there are other uh, church traditions that utilize other forms of baptism, pouring or sprinkling, and if you study them, you'll come to find out that those symbolize what they think are significant things as well. I don't mean to say that they're just like willy-nilly doing that like nobody 
uses a squirt gun for baptism or anything like that. But, but COVID I, you know, co- yeah. <laughs> they fling it yeah, <laughs> at it from a distance. There are different ways, and it is meaningful in those different church traditions, and I don't mean to minimize those church traditions. But um, one thing that I would point out that I didn't put on the, the list here is the one thing that would kind of differentiate what we stand for as a church. Now, there are... People that disagree with us as well is that you will go to, if you go to this church for the next 30 years, you will never see us baptize an infant. Um, my parents grew up uh, with a Lutheran, quasi Lutheran parents, a real formal type of church. And so when I was a baby, they baptized me into the Lutheran church because Lutheran, if you don't know anything about Lutheranism, it's essentially Roman Catholicism without the Roman Catholic priests. It's, it's almost the same thing. Uh, because Martin Luther wasn't trying to shut down the Roman Catholic Church. He was just trying to change the Roman Catholic Church to be closer to Scripture. So Lutherans and some other denominations will baptize babies. We don't believe in that here at Sierra Bible Church for a host of reasons that I won't necessarily get into. But the primary component is that we want people to be making the decision to whatever symbolized form of water they want to use, making the decision to identify with Christ so that the rest of the church body can watch it happen because that's going to lead us to point two. But any questions on baptism real quick? I was just going to say, uh, I would say baptizing a child, that's how the Catholic religion, I was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. and we do baptize infants mm-hmm. with water it's got to do with godparents and whatever else rituals they may have. Yeah. But yeah, they do it. And, and it's not that they're doing it. Roman Catholics do it for good reason. Don't get me wrong. They're just, we disagree with those reasons. But see, I agree with you there because as a child, you don't have uh, the mind to make up. As an adult, you get baptized. That's your choice. Yeah. As an infant, actually, that's your parent choice. Exactly. Yeah, and even even uh, non-Roman Catholic denominations like Lutherans and some forms of Presbyterian churches, I believe, uh, possibly Episcopalians, uh, when they baptize babies, they wouldn't say that the baptism in and of itself is saving that baby. It's identifying the baby as a member of the community of Christians. Um, my response to that, and you know, not that I'm ready to have that debate with uh, those brothers, and I would still consider them to be brothers, but um, my response to that is how can somebody become a part of the family of Christ without their individual submission to Christ? Like, I can't, I can't submit to Christ on your behalf. You have to submit to Christ. And so that's why at our church, we don't believe that infant baptism. Now, we will do... Um, baby dedications here, but anytime you hear a pastor do a baby dedication here, we'll make it abundantly clear. This is not going to save this child as if like, we just got to get it to, to the baby dedication to make sure that like he gets to be with Jesus. But it's more for us to show the rest of the church, Hey, there's another one among us. And we have a new opportunity to pray with this family that we will dedicate ourselves to doing everything we can to teach this baby about Jesus. So interestingly enough, I see a baby dedication, a marriage, 
and a baptism as essentially all the same function in that, yes, there are significant things happening for the two that are getting married or the individual that's getting baptized or the baby, but ultimately the most important thing is everyone else that's watching from the church community because they're going, oh, here's a new marriage. So we're going to devote ourselves to helping them have a Christ-like marriage. Oh, here's a new child. We're going to devote ourselves to teaching this new child the message of Christianity. Yes. Yeah, so all of these things are more about the church's response to what's happening. And baptism is the same. It's, oh, here's somebody that is committing themselves to Christ. And they're doing so that they're even willing to do this weird ceremony in front of us. That we need to reach out in love to help this person because it's going to be a journey for them. Yeah, if we do it at the lake, yeah, you get a barbecue for sure. <laughs> and so that's why, um, and I'm, I've already alluded to this uh, indirectly, uh, almost directly, but point two then becomes the next great tool that we want to talk about. He gave us the church. He gave us the church. Yeah, you could see where I was going with that, huh? Uh, I was reading well, plus it also, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure the second line is uh, the bride of Christ. Yeah, there you go. You know, you know. Uh, so, but it's important that somebody tell you this straight up front because I feel like sometimes we go years before people share this idea with you. The church is not a place you go. The church is not a place you go. It is a group of people to which believers belong. It is often referred to in scripture as Christ's body. Christ's body is that blank right there. Christ's body. The church labors together as we all seek Christ. Now, I have, um, I have a few less points here because we actually talked about some of this last week, but um, just to drive it home so that you've got a couple of reference passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27, Paul in his letter to the Corinthians is showing us that the church is comprised of all different kinds of people that are all united to care for one another, to care for one another. This is crucial. People will go nutso, and hopefully you haven't you know, been thrown too deep into this conversation yet if you're just at the start of your relationship with Jesus. But people will go nutso over 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 about all the spiritual gifts and trying to make arguments of what are the gifts and do they exist today. The point of chapters 12, 13, and 14 was that the spiritual gifts were given to us so that we could care for one another. It was less about, let's talk about the specific gifts and more about to care for one another. If you, and not if, we talked in either last week or the week before, that when you gave your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit gave you a gift or a combination of gifts. And the point of those gifts was so that you could help care for the church, that you could be at work for one another, which is why the most famous passage in 1 Corinthians is the middle of that argument. It's 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul starts to talk about love. Love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc. The reason why Paul is doing that is because he's trying to say, look, your gifts are not about you. Your gifts were given to you so that you could help love the church. You could help love Christ's body. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 falls in the middle of it. It's less about the gifts and more about the care for one another, okay? Um, Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25. Um, and I want to say this point 
clearly, but I also want to be a little bit careful about how I say it. The church, and the blank is, must gather. The church must gather. Uh, let me read this passage to you. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's what we just talked about. Not forsaking our own assembling together, not forsaking getting together, as is the habit of some, but instead assembling and encouraging one another all the more as you see the day is drawing near. The church must gather and encourage each other toward love and good actions. There are so many different ways that I could sit here and harp on this point about. Uh, I'll just make a couple of quick points. Okay, I don't share this with you because what I want to tell you is that in order to be a real Christian, you have to go to church. I think some people, even when I ask them, do you identify as a Christian? They'll say yes. And half of their reason for saying that is that they go to church. The, the pithy little phrase that was taught to me when I was in junior high that helped me learn that that's not the case is that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. Like that where you go doesn't make you what it is that you are. It's Christ and our connection with Christ that makes us who we are. But that being said, your gifts were given to you so that you could use them for whom? For the church, which means you actually need to get together with the church for them to be able to receive the actions that comes from it. You have to gather. Now, it's interesting, too, if you just look at social psychology, right? It's even gotten to the point within the secular world where you've got the Surgeon General coming out saying that our society, for the first time ever, is facing a brand new epidemic. It is an epidemic of loneliness that more than ever, American society specifically People are missing legitimate connections in their life. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a whole lot of things to be said as a result of that, but I find that interesting in light of the fact that we're being told that there's an epidemic of loneliness, and we're also being told that, generally speaking, church attendance is the lowest it's ever been in American history. Now, is church attendance the solution to all people's loneliness problems? No, because you could show up every single week, and it's not going to solve all your loneliness problems. But what it does show us is that God has made us deeply to be with one another. We were made to not be isolated. Even the introverts, we were made to not be isolated. We were made to be with one another and to use our gifts for one another. So we have to gather so that I can get the benefit of your gift and your gift. And you can get the benefit of mine and you can get the benefit of his, etc., etc. Okay? So... We need to gather as a church, and it's not to be legalistic about the rules. It's because we need each other. Definitely uh, myself. <clears throat> when I'm not able to come to church, I go to church at my house. Mm -hmm. My prayers and whatever things I do here in church, mm -hmm. I do in my church at, at the house. But when I do, am able to come to church, I feel the... Uh, the warmth of the gathering of people, the fellowship. Yeah. And that brings a whole new peace to my being. It's like, okay, I'm satisfied with doing my church rituals at home, mm -hmm. but when I'm here, I, 
I am greatly satisfied just with the fellowship. Absolutely. Whole, yeah. All different meaning. We, we certainly need to get to a place where it's not that the opposite is true of us, that we, we have to be around other believers in order for us to feel like we have a legitimate relationship with God. That's not it. We want to still be pursuing Christ alone, but we benefit so much more when we, do, when we gather as a community. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of this, and you're seeing, or you will probably see at this point, that these are all overlapping, because I can go to point three here. Um, and we've already made reference to this, and we're going to talk about it again. But he gave us spiritual gift. He gave us spiritual gifts. Each individual, quick description here, and because this is a little bit of a uh, repeat of stuff that we've said in other weeks, stuff that we've said today. Uh, but each individual Christian brings their own unique story, which is then combined with the special ability or abilities given by the Holy Spirit for the benefit of helping the church grow. So um, we've already driven this point home, so I won't belabor this, but I, I will give you at least the answers to the blanks here because these passages are important that support this idea. Spiritual gifts are individually given, not all the same, but so that each person's gift can benefit the whole. I've already partially driven this point home, but I, it is... So important that you recognize this at the outset because it'll save you so much time. We start to think somehow that like the guy that's doing the message is the most important or the person that sings really well is the most important or the really friendly person is the most important and all of that's nonsense. You are important to the body of Christ in the gifts that you bring and so they, they benefit the whole. Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 16, looks like I didn't give you a blank here, but we'll just read it real we'll read the idea here, that each is given a gift of grace that results in a church that cannot be shaken by the world. This is one of the beautiful things that we saw. Oddly enough, um, you know, just as like a, a quick side note, our church, SBC, numerically grew during the time of church shutdowns within COVID. And it was probably for two reasons. Number one, people didn't, they were losing their sense of community from other places. And this was one of the only places that people were still gathering. And so they were coming for that type of connection with others. But they were noticing too that things, when normal life and the way that you see normal life gets shaken up, you start to look for answers, right? And people started to realize that not only was something happening when I gathered with these, this church that was gathering, but when they saw the interactions of the people there, we realized that, that that couldn't be shaken by the world. It doesn't matter what happens in the world. If God allows a pandemic that is three times worse than the COVID one was, we will still gather as a church. We will still praise his name. And as a result, we're not going to be scared or frightened as a result of that because we cannot be shaken by the world. We have each other. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Though our gifts benefit others, this is a, a, just a bonus point, using them is actually an act of worship to God. Using our gifts is worship to God. And it's important that you know this at the outset, because sometimes people can falsely believe that the music that we do, like when during a church gathering, 
that that's worship. And, we'll, and you'll hear it referred to as worship. Well, it is indeed worship when we do that music. But that doesn't mean that worship in the Bible, as it's described, means the gathering and singing songs together. Yes, we use music as a tool to worship God for a lot of reasons, but what the Bible describes as our act of worship to God is actually giving ourselves to God and giving ourselves to one another, that that is our primary act of worship. And so using our spiritual gifts for the benefit of other people within the church actually is an act of worship to God, and that is your primary act of worship to God. So much so, I'll even go so far to say it this way, that the person that shows up to church week after week after week shows up, sings the songs, listens to the message and goes, yup, and then leaves, is, will pretty quickly get to the point where them coming is more about checking a box and less about worshiping God. Mm-hmm. Instead, if they can come with the attitude of, how can I benefit the people that are around me? How can I help them worship God? How can I use my gifts to their abilities? Or I'm sorry, to their benefit. How can I use my story to help them? Suddenly that becomes a much more deep and meaningful worship experience because it's not about what can be facilitated from stage, but it's about what God originally designed it to be. So, so quickly, so could I use... Praise God as another word for worship? You could, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You could certainly say that our worship is praise to God. Yeah. Okay. Can, uh, can I ask a question about the, like, what is the purpose of worship? The purpose of worship. Okay, so I can answer that in a very quick way, and I can answer it in a really long way. So okay, here's, your quick version. here's the quick version. Okay. The purpose of worship is actually um, to live out what we were made to do. This is one of the most difficult things for me to come to terms with, and it took me years, to tell you the truth. For a while, I kind of had a hard time accepting that God, who could have made the world any way possible, Mm -hmm. made us as human beings worship factories. We're going to worship something. Right. And remember in week one uh, that all Satan needs to get us to do is to worship anything other than God. And we are essentially serving him because we were originally made to worship God. And so the primary point of worship is for us living out what we were made for, which can feel a little weird. Like, why would God make us, like, if you start to explore that idea initially, why would God make us such that we have to worship him? Is he, like, some glory hound? Or, like, is he, like, really insecure with himself? (laughs) And so he made, like, a bunch of beings that could worship him? Like, I know that sounds funny, but I'm, I'm just telling you the truth. Like, these were ideas that I had. Like, trying to, like, God, what is this all about? And that starts to get into the longer answer. But a quick synopsis of the longer answer is that if God would have made us in such a way that we didn't appreciate him, Mm -hmm. we actually would be poorer for it. It was actually an act of love. It was an act of love to make us not feel at home until we are worshiping him because God is the ultimate of all things that are good. He is the most beautiful. He is the most loving. 
He is the most creative. He is the most joyful. He is the most compassionate. He is the most of all things that we look to as great. And so if we were created in such a way to not want to worship him, then we would actually be missing out on the best that exists. And so the point of worship is for us to actually live out the purpose for which we were created. And we find that the more worshipful that our life becomes, which isn't, again, it's not about the songs that we sing, although they are great tools, but the more worshipful that our lives become, the more at home we start to feel within ourselves. So to summarize, you're saying he gave us the cravings to worship him so that it would benefit us, so that we would function and live the way that we need to live. Like he gave us the desire to want what we need, essentially. Yeah. But we find it from different sources. That's, that's a great way to say it. He gave us the desire to want what we need. That's a great way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, there's a longer answer to that too, but yeah. um, that's the core of it. Um, okay. So with uh, we got two more points here. We're doing good on time, but there's a lot more blanks. But uh, we don't necessarily have to park on every single one of these blanks. Point four. He gave us the Bible. Remember, so we're talking about what are the tools to help us abide in him. He gave us baptism. He gave us the church. We can depend on one another. He gave us spiritual gifts so that we can mutually benefit one another within the church. And then he gave us the Bible. This is point four. The, the Bible, and we're going to camp on this for a little while because the Bible is so significant. We even put it in the title of our church. You'll notice that every point that we've tried to make, or at least every point that I've tried to make through these classes, has been generated from within the Bible. God, the, because at Sierra Bible Church, we believe that the Bible is God's words written through human authors, given to man to provide an understanding of God and for guidance on how to live. The Bible is God's words written through human authors, given to man to provide understanding of God and guidance for how to live. So... Here are just a few things um, which originally when I was first taught these things were like, here's proof that the Bible is what it is that I just said. It, it, yes and no, but like I, realistically speaking, I'm not going to uh, try to support that the Bible is what it says it is by just using the Bible. Um, it, that becomes a little bit circular when I'm trying to make the argument. But that being said, we also want to take seriously what the Bible does say about itself, because we would expect that if it's to guide us, that it should tell us, hey, it's worth guiding us. So like Psalm 119.9 tells us that the way towards success is knowing and keeping God's words. Do you? Yeah. Could you, would you mind just reading it? And then I can read it. Uh, 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? Yeah, so the way towards success, how can a young man, I, I mean, you could generally widen it out. It's not, it's not just guidance for young men. Yeah, I'm just reading it. yeah, that is what it says, but I'm trying to make it a little, little bit wider. The way towards success is, uh, is knowing and keeping God's words. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter writes that Scripture came from writing men as they were moved by God, writing men who were moved by God. Remember, we're just trying to show that the Bible describes itself 
as it is God's words being written through human authors. So scripture came from writing men who were moved by God. And in case it's someplace or something that you really need within your soul, there's even a little bit of an argument to be made that not only men were authors of scripture, but there's a potential that um, even the book of Hebrews, I think there's a decent argument that the, the book of Hebrews uh, may have been written by a woman. Uh, and don't, I don't find that to be particularly problematic. Um, but don't, cool. don't get hung up just on the idea of men if you're, if you're really needing that. Uh, and then 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 tells us that all scripture is, and the word there that I want you to fill in is God breathed. That Greek word, which I've tried to stay away from because I don't want to necessarily like get all intimidating for the entry level stuff. But it's theopneustos. It literally means God's breath. That's okay. It essentially means God's, God breathed it out. And on top of it, the rest of the verse shows us, and this isn't a blank, but it's useful for what we need in life, which is great. Because God, being ultimately significantly smarter than us, knows how to tell us what we, give us what we need in life. So, um, because the Bible is so significant, I wanted to give you four more points about the Bible while we talk about the Bible, okay? This is our little side, side section. No, it's, it's here. There's still some blanks here. Yeah. So, a few quick notes on reading the Bible, okay? First, uh, the Bible is not a normal book, so it can't be read like a normal book. It's important that a lot of people understand this. It's a really, I, I mean, I, I love talking to, like, new Christians, and they are so excited about having a Bible, and what they do is what you would do with any other book. They open it up to the beginning, and they start reading here, and Genesis gets kind of like really, it's, it's interesting, which is good, and then it kind of gets to stories, and then you get to Exodus, and you're like, all right, it's starting to get bogged down, and by the time you get to like the third book of Leviticus, where you start like bumping into the laws for the Old Testament people, you lose interest, and you're like, what in the world is happening here? I don't like this, okay? So it shouldn't be read like a normal book. What did you say? I'm currently listening to the chronological Bible. Okay, the chrono. So that's written. So did it start with Job? It started with, uh, okay. it started with the first seven chapters of Genesis and then went into Job. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So, and here's the thing, and all of these points are actually going to make responses to that type of idea. The Bible's not a normal book. So it can't be read like a normal book. You probably won't have much success initially trying to just read it cover to cover. If you do, that's great. I'm not going to turn you down from that, okay? Um, but focus first on the teachings of Jesus. Remember, we're coming to the Bible, the, if, if you can kind of think in organized thoughts, the goal of this was to try to figure out what's it look like to abide in Christ, right? That was our goal, to try to understand how to abide in Christ. Well, Remember, the goal of that was to try to live out Jesus' teachings. So we should start with reading Jesus' teachings. That's the beautiful part of it, right? It's just, it's, that's the, it's not a sophisticated argument that I'm making. But if people don't tell you that ahead of time, and you don't realize that Jesus' teachings don't really show up until you get to about this point of the book, more or less, you have to read through all of this stuff before you get to Jesus' teachings. And Jesus interestingly starts to teach going look all that stuff that came before me it was actually pointing to me mm -hmm. and so if we start with jesus teachings we start off well focus first on the teachings of jesus 
So if you want some suggestions, try uh, the Gospel of Mark, which I often refer to as the comic book gospel because it happens just really fast. All the events happen, a lot of the... And Mark's favorite word to use, he just keeps using it over and over again, is immediately. And immediately this happened. And then immediately this happened. And then this happened. And then this happened. So it happens really fast. And then if you want to try to start understanding some of the theological significance, like what's going on behind the scenes, uh, you could read the Gospel of John, which is a completely different perspective on Jesus and his teachings. But John starts to draw out more of the theological significance. Then go from there and read some of the, in the next blank here, are the church letters. The church letters in the New Testament. Things like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. These are letters written, most of the, the ones that I just listed off there, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, those are all written by the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to churches that he either helped start or sent people to help start, and he's trying to guide them. Here's what it looks like to be a successful church. Well, if we're turning to Scripture to try to understand how to live out the teachings of Jesus, how to be connected as a church and use my gifts for the church, then reading letters that were written to try to help churches be successful end up being a pretty helpful thing. Okay? Mm -hmm. Did you get that blank there? I know that they're kind of structured a little bit weird here, but they were just to try to keep you, keep you tracking with me. So, then branch out from there. Here's another important part, uh, another important point. I, I like making this point. I don't think there's even any blanks. I just want you to read this. Um, the Bible wasn't written in English, okay? None of, none of the original parts of the Bible were written in English. So, when you read the Bible in English, you can just read along with my note here. When you read the Bible in English, you're reading a translation of other languages, Further, different translations of the Bible have different translation priorities, which is a big idea that I try to summarize in this parenthesis here. Some are trying to be more literal, like word-for-word -word mm -hmm. translations. Some are trying to be easier to read, trying to talk more like idea by idea, not worrying so much about word-for-word trade-off. All English versions, and this is my personal opinion, this is Brad's personal opinion, I personally think all English versions have strengths and weaknesses. So don't be afraid to try reading different translations. A really simple way to say this is if you find yourself reading scripture, because some people, let's be honest, a lot of people don't like books. They don't like reading books. They have a hard time learning from books. And though this is not like any other type of book and the Holy Spirit will be involved in the process, Sometimes it gets in the way, the way that it's translated. I do not think that there is any such thing, nor does anyone leading Sierra Bible Church think that there is any one magical English translation that unless you use this one, you're not reading the real Bible. Now, you should know that there are Christians that do think that type of thing. There are some Christians. I grew up um, partially or part of my Christian history in Baptist churches. Some Baptist churches believe that if you don't read the King James, the original 1611 King James Version, you're not reading the Bible. Anything else isn't the Bible. Here's all I really care about. Read the Bible. So if by your conscience you can't bring yourself to read other, anything other than 1611 King James, great, read that. But 
there's a whole lot of other versions that might be a little bit easier for you to read, and you might learn a whole lot more about what Jesus was actually trying to get across to you or what Paul was actually trying to tell the church if you read some other versions. And there's lots of versions. And, then, and they have different translation priorities. Don't be afraid to try different ones. And fortunately, we're so blessed in America. Let me finish this sentence and then you can ask that question. We're so blessed in America that we have, there are so many free versions of the Bible on the internet. It's crazy. Like I used to, I mean, I personally, granted, I'm a, I'm a Bible student. I have degrees in Bible study stuff. Um, you know, so I have somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe eight or nine different versions of the Bible printed in, in my house. You don't need that many versions, but fortunately we have so many available and that's such a beautiful thing. What was your question? What are your thoughts on newer Bibles cutting verses? What are my thoughts on newer Bibles cutting verses? Can you tell me what you mean by that? So like Luke 4.4 4 uh -huh. is Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Mm -hmm. But then in older Bibles, there's a continuation of that like like 3.11. I, I can't remember the exact wording of it. Okay. But in like this one, it goes straight into verse 5. And the devil took him up and yeah gotcha so without diving like super deep down the rabbit hole there is a whole science that is specifically geared towards trying to figure out so you should know this is partially down the rabbit hole but i promise you we won't dive all the way to the bottom of it you should know that we have none of the original text we don't have anything that was written by the person that actually wrote it so like if we're looking at, for instance, the Gospel of John, we don't have John's version that he wrote with his hand. We have instead copies that other people made to make sure that there would be enough copies of the original to go around. But as people copied, because we didn't have a Xerox machine that would leave little hairs on it, right? They had to actually write it down. Uh, there were things that were written down incorrectly. They would misspell words. They would look at one line while they're writing down another one, and then copies were made from copies. And so there's a whole science called textual criticism that is geared towards trying to, for different ways of looking at it or different sciences, hone its way to what is the original text. And there are still some portions of the text that we don't have 100% certainty of this is what it originally said. It was actually, it might be this, or it might be that. Now, fortunately, in the case of the Bible, what we found is that when they do the science of textual criticism, there is no book like the Bible that has as much evidence to indicate that we are really close to the original text. And for the sections that we disagree on, none of them are of theological significance. So it's not like there's this one version over here that says Jesus is a flying blue bird, and we're like there. Are no, there's nothing weird like that it's it's spellings of words is was it this word versus that word you know it is it uh, was the word we or they you know it's that type of stuff generally speaking that's partially into the rabbit hole without diving all the way through so when they're cutting off words like that it's because that translation group decided to use a certain text group that they think is the most reliable text group and they think that 
the extra part wasn't an original part of the text. Whereas another translation group goes, well, we think it was part of the original text. So that's what's happening when maybe some version has a longer verse than another one. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. All right, so that's point two. Um, point three, um, we're doing good. Take a few more minutes here. They, there can be disagreement on what some of the text means. Different churches and church traditions, that's what we know as denominations, they have some disagreements about secondary points. That's what I wanted you to put in that blank. They have disagreements about secondary points. To finish out the thought, don't be afraid of this. It's why we need other Christians, because none of us was given a perfect mind. There's disagreement within different Christian churches about what some of the Bible means. That's not a scary thing. It's actually, uh, I personally find that to be a whole lot more encouraging because it helps me realize that I'm not in a cult. If everybody had to believe every single point exactly the same, I think that'd be a little bit scarier. But the fact that we can look at the same text and be like, well, I think it kind of means this, and somebody else goes, well, I don't know, maybe it means that. And we have the freedom to be able to talk about it and sort it out and seek the Holy Spirit and ask Jesus to be present with us in our studies. I find that to actually be more encouraging because it's not a groupthink type of situation. It gives more freedom for us to work through it. Then, uh, point four. And I think this is the most important point, even though it, it might seem kind of a silly point to make, I personally think this is the most important point, especially for a guy that spent a ton of time and money trying to learn Bible stuff. We don't read the Bible to get information about God, but instead to love God and grow closer to him, to love God and grow closer to him. We talked about the Holy Spirit and how it's the Holy Spirit's job to help us with this. But here's the thing, I have, if you go to this book without legitimately trying to love Jesus, without trying to learn from the Holy Spirit, without trying to actually follow God, if you just go to this book and start like randomly hunting and pecking and you don't really care about what God's trying to do with this book, you can come up with all kinds of crazy things. And this book is long enough and old enough that if you're, sophisticated at arguing, you can actually make it say all kinds of weird things, right? We have to go to it for the purpose for which God intended it. God intended it to help facilitate our relationship with him so that we could better understand him and understand for how we should live our lives in worship to him. And then he guides us through that process. So it's not about amassing information about God. It's instead to love God and grow closer to him. Okay. So point five for the last couple of minutes that we have. Um, And this is going to be a ton of information that I'm going to shoot off real quickly. But I really wish that somebody would have told me this straight at straight out the gate. Point five in our tools to try to abide in Christ. He gave us the other spiritual disciplines spiritual disciplines. Now, some of my current brothers in Christ have encouraged me to stop using the word disciplines because they think that that's a scary word for people. And I understand that. And I'm trying to come up with that with better words. You could, 
um, if you if you don't like the word discipline, you could call them spiritual formation practices, which are which is a little bit longer. But at the end of it, here's what I mean by discipline. Before I start reading it, this you call it like a ritual, not in the sense of like I don't want to call it a ritual, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Um, but a discipline, or by a discipline, I mean something that we do. And I've stole this straight from Dallas Willard, who I think I've mentioned before, and I will keep mentioning probably until I die. But a discipline is just something that we do under our effort that trains us to accomplish something we can't do by our effort. That's all we mean by the, by the idea of discipline. Something that we can do by our effort to train us to be able to do something that we can't do by our effort. So before we dive into spiritual disciplines, just so that you understand the concept of what a discipline is, uh, I don't know where you guys are at if you all lift weights, but let me just make an assessment at this point. Probably most of you in this room cannot bench press your body weight three times. Maybe you can. I don't know if you've tried. Okay? I haven't tried. Uh, but let's just assume for the sake of my argument that you can't, right? You can't bench press your, your, your weight three times. You can't currently do that underneath your power. However, you can undergo a training regimen that builds your skill to the point where one day you would be able to, Right? You start with five push-ups, right? You can't bench press your body weight three times, but you start with five push-ups. You gradually work your way up. You start bench pressing. You gradually work your way up, and you get to the point where you could do that and even more so. That's all we mean by disciplines is that they're things, they're training regimens is what they are. You could call them that, spiritual training regimens. You call them that. However, there's a key component is that when we say spiritual disciplines, they are for our spirit, and they are by the spirit. There's a double entendre with that word spiritual there. They're for the training of our spirit, and they are in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. So that's why they're spiritual disciplines. It's not just training for other stuff, okay? Quick, uh, quick paragraph here, and then the last blanks. For the past 2,000 years, Christians have learned life practices from Jesus and his followers, Learning how to do these life practices has been a way to engage our own action to open ourselves up to the Spirit's action in our lives. Now, there's no complete list of the disciplines, and understanding each of the disciplines and practicing each of the disciplines takes time well beyond what we can discuss here. Uh, for now, I'm just going to give you a quick list of some of the most popular disciplines that the church has used and generally what they're used for. So I've left blanks for what they're called, but left the description for what they are here. Okay. Again, no complete list of the disciplines. It's not like these are the magic list. This is the magic <laughs> list. There's no complete list, but this is some of the ones that Christians have found the most useful through the, through the centuries. Uh, a, solitude and silence, solitude and silence. Um, solitude. I, I did a slash. You could do both. Um, but solitude and silence is going into a quiet place with God that allows him to work through what's happening in our heart. There's all kinds of things happening inside of our heart. And until we detach from what's going on around us, we we will most likely not ever be able... That's the, the biggest tool that Satan uses is just distracting us, right? Just keep giving us lots of noise. 
and distraction, and we'll never explore with God what's going on inside of our heart. So solitude becomes important. B, prayer. There are thousands, if not tens of thousands, of different books on prayer, lots of different ways to understand. There's different words within the scriptural text that talk about prayer. Here's the basic idea of prayer. Learning the process of speaking to God and the process of hearing from God. Learning the process of speaking to God and the process of hearing from God. Because let's be honest, when we're talking about God, it's a different kind of relationship than every other relationship that you have, right? Because you're inherently working with a being that's not sitting here in front of you. You can't smell him, right? Let's just look at that as a, a quick way to see that it's different. So learning how to speak with God in the process of hearing from God is an important discipline to learn. Third, uh, I didn't give you a long enough blank for this, so you can use whatever version you want to call it. But scripture, meditation, and study. Scripture, meditation, and study. Now, meditation and study are two different ways of using scripture, and I'm not going to dive into it here. But here's the general concept. Learning how to use the words of Scripture, the words of the Bible, to teach you more about God's priorities. Now, meditation, like I said, meditation and study are two different concepts, and they each are actually, I consider them each to be separate disciplines, but they dovetail on top of each other in a really effective way. Uh, point D, fasting. Fasting in the, has started to get a little bit more popular uh, these days within secular culture, but the reality is that fasting primarily, initially, was a spiritual practice. Fasting is the process of learning how our bodies affect our spiritual life. This is not a real popular concept for people to talk about anymore, that our bodies are actually part of our spiritual health. Mm -hmm. But I tell you, the more that you study spiritual health, the more you realize how our bodies affect it. Um, and fasting is one of the primary tools that God gave us to be able to uh, learn how our bodies affect our spiritual life. Is that a question, Hand? Yes. Okay. Is, would that mean that our care of our bodies would be connected to that as well? Is that kind of... The care of our bodies being connected yeah. to, to it? I think absolutely. Now, I need to put a giant asterisk next to that because there's lots of different ways that people interpret the idea care for bodies. Right. But the bottom line is God loves your body mm -hmm. just as much as he loves your spirit. And if people would understand that more, they would, there would be a, that has so many different ramifications about our self-worth. And, and there's all kinds of wrong ways to see this because our culture has become body obsessed without being spirit obsessed. Mm -hmm. But we as Christians can't swing the pendulum in the opposite direction and think that God doesn't care about our bodies. He actually does. So, but could you take it to say like, say in a secular setting? You're going out, you're drinking, you're eating fast food, you're not taking care of yourself very well, right? That can affect your spiritual life, I guess is what I'm trying to maybe implicate. There's no question that we, we are more than just one part and everything that we do for the different aspects uh, of who we are does affect our spiritual health. So yeah, there is a connection there. Uh, let's fill out these blanks because it looks like the service is getting out, so I want to make sure we get it done before people are coming and going. Uh, what are we on? We're on E, uh, Sabbath. Sabbath is a Jewish word. Um, 
that the practice of learning how to Sabbath is, the, is learning how to rest in God and trust in his ability to take care of your needs. The beautiful part is that none of these spiritual disciplines, and I'll go ahead and point it out at this point, none of them are commanded anywhere that you have to do any of these things. They're not laws. You don't have to do any of these things. They're tools that we can use to abide in Christ, and we will find significant benefit, but they're not laws. It's not a law that you Sabbath, but uh, a lot of people in America need to relearn Sabbath and the beauty of what God gave us in Sabbath. Uh, it's also important here, uh, point F, this is also not a law, and we're not Roman Catholics, but confession is the next spiritual discipline. Confession, which is not going into a booth with like a, you know, somebody sitting on the other side, forgive me, Brad, for I have sinned. I can't forgive your sins, right? But at the same time, James, the, the biblical author, says confess your sins one to another. And the reason why is we are learning to be honest about our own struggles and failures, Churches are healthier when they stop pretending like we're perfect. Like we start, like that everything is just hunky-dory and that everything is automatically perfect all the time, okay? So that's the point of confession and learning how to confess to one another. Last three, point G, service. Service. We've already talked about this a lot under spiritual gifts, but service is just, just, just the discipline of giving of your time to benefit the physical needs of someone else. Um, point H, celebration, the discipline of celebration. I love seeing celebration as a discipline because what that teaches me is that celebration is not based off of my feelings. It's based off of who God is and how I'm growing in him. So it's learning how to worship God despite how our emotions are currently oriented. Our emotions are not what drives us to God. And the discipline of celebration becomes the tool to show us that. And last uh, point I, the discipline of giving. Um, churches are constantly asking you to give money. And it, becomes, it can become really confusing, especially when you then see the pastors driving really nice cars or flying in jets or taking expensive trips. You start to, and, but, you know, you giving your money, uh, no. What, it can be really confusing. But at the same time, I do you a disservice to not tell you about the reality that a lot of the Bible actually talks about using our money to help us grow in our relationship with God. And the discipline of giving teaches us to trust God with our finances. That's the point of it. So um, if you're interested more in spiritual disciplines, uh, good news, I'm hyper interested in spiritual disciplines. That's like the new um, era of what I feel like God is impressing upon my heart to be better at teaching the church about. Um, and so look for more opportunities to learn about spiritual disciplines in the next year um, and uh, if things go according to at least the current plan, there will also be more opportunities to exercise spiritual disciplines in group settings. Uh, God is providing. Thanks for listening to this part of the New Believers class. Again, if you have any questions about this material or anything Jesus related, Pastor Brad would love to talk with you. Email him at bbeers at sbctrucky.com. Hopefully we'll see you at our next gathering. Until then, keep seeking after Jesus.